Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork, and I am delighted to welcome Reverend Dr. Renita J. Weems. Reverend Dr. Weems is a fantastic human, a scholar, a theo, a theologian, theolo- theologian, theologian, theologian. Look, she she is doing something I can't even pronounce, y'all. A theologian, a quilt maker, as well as a leader in creating a quilt guild in Nashville, Tennessee. She is the first woman to get a PhD in Hebrew Bible, she or Old Hebrew. She is an author of many books. And one of the things I love about her work is her commitment to Black women faith and healing. That's what I've received from her work. And one of her books is called Just a Sister Away. And in that book, she says that sometimes our healing is just a sister away. The idea of recognizing in another sister a story that one might find within oneself and the hope for mercy in that encounter. She is a co-pastor of the New Hope Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Ray of Hope Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And again, listen, I'm going to put a link to her Wikipedia entry in the show notes. How about that? That's what I'll do. And then y'all can find out more about the wonderful things that she does like that on your own. I will mention this. This is fantastic. There is a book called Black Stars. And it is anthology or a reference book of over 200 influential, timeless, Black, spiritual, religious leaders who have made vital contributions to American life and the American church and the spiritual and physical liberation of Black people. It includes figures such as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. It includes figures like Sojourner Truth, Adam Clayton Powell, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It also includes the person you are looking at right now on this video interview. Not me, Reverend Dr. Renita J. Waves. She is in that book, y'all, because she is that pastor. Okay, she is that person, and I am so grateful and so happy to have you here. Welcome! Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. I have been a fan of your podcast and of your Instagram page for quite some time. So I am honored, and I was stunned by the invitation. Well, I am so glad to have you here. This is fantastic. Now. One of the things I was interested in, that we could talk a bit about how your quilting and sewing and your leadership, as well as your own creative practice as a writer, as a thinker, as a scholar, as a pastor, as a woman of faith, all of these things seem to come together so seamlessly in your life. One of the quotes that you have in the foreword of your book on Just a Sister Away is you talk about the common thread of women's experience. And that that can become a link between women of today and women of the past, in particular in the Bible. Can you talk a little bit about how that, if you might see in some sense, how sewing might show up as that type of connection? Uh, This is a a beautiful, a wonderful question because it, it, you know, it gives an opportunity to kind of probably wax about something that I care about so much, but what the platform allows me to talk about sewing and uh, Black women's writings and the Bible and women's leadership and women in the church. And I think that certainly I welcome joining you this this afternoon because it allows me uh, to do that. And it is precisely the image that that you use, which is thread, or the same, uh, those two 
images, if you will, someone who is visual. Uh, I think you you picked right up on it. I don't know if it has been seamless, but it certainly has been a thread throughout much of my life, but I think also Black women's lives as well. This whole notion of sewing, this whole notion of crafts, this whole notion of using one's hands, this whole notion of being creative, what you're feeling on the inside, uh, expressing it with your with your hands, I think is is very important. I, I love stories in the Bible uh, because I am a church woman or whatever that language is now. Uh, so images of Mary and Martha cooking, having an argument because Jesus is there. Martha comes and complains to Jesus and tell my sister to come in here in this kitchen with me because there's a lot of work here. And, and I mean, so that notion of that. So there are a lot of stories about women cooking. There's a lot of stories uh, about women preparing and hosting people. There are not enough stories about women and um, in, the, in the Bible, but there are beautiful stories. Now, listen, when, we, we, when I was younger, and I'm older than you, when I was younger, I think this is a part of a conversation that I have if not here, but some other time. Remember, I came up during a period when we were anti the domestic arts, if you will. We were rebelling as a women's rights movement, if you will, to all things domestic, correct? I mean, you just did not admit that you cooked or that you sold or that you did anything domestic. I mean, now that was also, that was a burgeoning of the crafts movement during that particular period. So there were both these things. But in terms of who were thin women, can I use that? Those of us who were intellectuals, those of us pursuing PhDs, those of us who wanted careers, we had to distance, we thought we had to distance ourselves from all things domestic arts or women's crafts, the private lives of women in terms of the things we did in our home. And yet, of course, I grew up. I am from the boomer generation. I don't think I took sewing high school, but I grew up with family, with women in my family who sewed by all means. And so therefore I had to learn to sew. My first big project was my um, high school prom dress. Wow. This is the early 70s. This was not necessarily unusual to, to sew your dress. And so that image of women sewing was a part of my life. And I went to an Ivy Women's. When I graduated from college, I had a, I had a boyfriend, had a singer, featherweight. Uh, he came to, I don't know how he stole his mama's singer's featherweight. And I think he was going to pawn it oh for some weed or gosh. something. I don't know what it was. He was a real catch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a real catch. I'm telling you, I didn't marry Bubba. I didn't marry Bubba. I did date him for, for a couple of minutes. But part of our breaking up, I ended up with the singer Featherweight. I don't even know if to this day how I at but thanks to God, that singer featherweight I used to sew my first outfits for my first job on Wall Street. When I finished college, I was an economics major and my first job was a public accountant uh, in Boston and then I went down to New York for uh, Merrill Lynch as a stockbroker. And I sold all my little singer butterick pattern dresses from that singer from that singer featherweight machine. Yes. And so that and so I took all of that now of course I never told anybody that I was sewing, you know, working on Wall Street. I didn't tell anybody I was sewing. And after a while, once uh, I started moving and and doing some other kinds of things. I put down sewing, but I came back with, about 12 years ago, I came back to it first through quilting and then through one day about 11, 12 years ago saying, why am I spending all this money on clothes uh, when I do know how to sew? I mean, so quilting reintroduced me to, reminded me that I did know how to sew. Yeah. I started back sewing. So I, I love quilting. I loved quilting, but really quilting brought me back to draping my body, yeah. feeling good about my yeah. body, getting in touch with my body, yeah. touching, touching my body. Yes, yes, yeah. It was, it was a long time before I was sewing here these last, when I really 
I didn't really want to measure my waist. Uh, I didn't want to see my hips. Right. I hate it when you all, you made sores say, now get your body measurements. I'm like, no, oh, I don't want to. I want to have a good time. Stop it. I don't want to be sad. <laughs> and it was, it was when I finally broke that and just said, get the tape measure because everything you're making is not fitting you. But it was a whole body moment. It was a, a moment of reacquainting yourself with your body. You wanted to soak because your body was changing, but you didn't really want to look at your body. You really didn't want to touch it in that kind of way. So it was all of those kinds of things. And, and I think a lot of my scholarship, close with me, a lot of my own scholarship has been about women owning their bodies, loving their bodies, loving themselves. And the truth of the matter is, it, it was still theoretical until I got the tape measure out. Wow. And actually. Now that's a word. Until I actually, yeah, that's a word. It yeah, was until still I actually theoretical got the tape until I got that tape measure out. Wow. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. That is yep. facts. That is, that is so powerful because it feels so real. And I have absolutely been there. And one of my friends says, she recommends using the centimeter side of the tape because we aren't on the metric system. We don't know what centimeters mean. So, you know, if you, it's really the same, it's just information. All you need is information. And if, you know, we've been so, I think, ingrained to attach meaning to inch wide measurements and like you can instantly judge your body based on this inch or that inch. But for, at least for me, because I don't think in centimeters, I can just say, oh, okay, that's right, 118, okay, good, set. all right, that, that's fine, okay. And it doesn't give me the same, you know, like anxiety. At the same time, it's also a practice, right? You've got to practice. Every day you have to practice choosing to love yourself in the same ways that we like to think. At least I like to think that God loves us, which is without judgment, which is just like, this is your body. It's wonderful. It's part of who you are. And without it, you wouldn't be you. So let's just take stock of this so we can make sure your pants fit well. You know, doesn't matter. You only make your- That's all you're trying to do. That's all you got to do. Make your pants fit well for you. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. That was a great point. For this week, we're going to talk about word of the year. And that is something that I started doing. I know people have done it for quite some time, but I didn't start doing it, I think, really seriously, maybe until last year. So let's take a few minutes and talk about word of the year. I've decided to go with a word that would also be a good reminder, something that can help me help center myself, help me just remember, help me to... I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. It's hard to put a a, a finger on it exactly. But my word is abundance. Abundance, abundance, abundance. Abundance works well for me because it covers or because it's such an abundant word. it, It covers a variety of concepts and practices in my life. So abundance is linked to Uh, Christianity and the New Testament especially. Um, So that's something that's important to me. It relates to the a very useful and important critique of capitalism because capitalism relies on scarcity. And if there is abundance, and if you believe that there is abundance, then there is no scarcity. And also abundance is helpful for me as a reminder of my possibility the things that I that I am limitless as to quote Beyonce in um in Homecoming that I am limitless that all of these things are available in abundance um goodness joy love all of these things there's plenty there's absolutely plenty also I since I really do believe and hope to practice as an ideal community over competition Competition is a scarcity mindset that it's only one person who can do the one thing. If you're not number one, then you're in second place or whatever, and that's meant to be bad. That's not true. That doesn't operate when there is abundance. And if with an abundance mindset and an abundance philosophy, 
that's the reason why abundance is my word for 2022 because I definitely get in positions sometimes where I feel overwhelmed. I feel like, oh, I, I, I just can't do this or it's just too much, et cetera, et cetera. And to uh, rely on to kind of pull back, to step back and to look around and say, you know, I have what I need. I have abundance. I, there is abundance. I don't have to hurry and rush to get this thing before it like vanishes. All of that, the rush, the hurry is something that is not necessary when there is abundance. And so that's just a concept that's really, I'm really excited to practice um, and remind myself of. And hopefully I can, I can hold on to it um, when things kind of, you know, get rough. I also think about the show Pose, which I really love the show Pose. And Electra's house is the house of abundance. And I don't want to give any spoilers or anything of the sort, but Electra has been a character throughout the series who has had an abundance mindset and abundant practices and belief systems when she had nothing at all. She had herself. And that was the key to the abundance. Um, and I think that's true for all of us. So, so that's why abundance is my word of the year. So it becomes important for us to be able to measure ourselves without judgment, without stigma, because in some ways, sewing, at least for me, is a deeply intimate practice. I find it a, a I, I won't say it's therapy because in my opinion, therapy is therapy. Some people say sewing is my therapy. No, girl. Have you ever had an actual therapist that talks back to you and helps you, you know, identify your problematic behaviors, you know? Because that is really helpful. It's very liberating. And so yes. sewing is not my therapy. Therapy is my therapy, but it is therapeutic. And something yeah. I was interested in learning more about from you is you talk about in your book, you look at the Song of Solomon as a way to help women connect to their passions. And mm -hmm. so I definitely have a strong passion for sewing. Can you talk a little bit more about like how women's passion or like did sewing ever become a passion before it was like, no, I don't, I don't want to, you know, to do this, but now you are doing it more and you are measuring your body and you are making gorgeous garments for yourself. Um, you went from Thank the you. quilt life to the garment life rather seamlessly with the pun. Were you able to tap into different types of a vision of passion yeah. as part of that, in the, of that creative process? Yes. I mean, great question. You certainly have read my my text, and you certainly are aware of my books. Yeah, I think I, I look at the story of the Song of Solomon in particular, that I am looking at this black-skinned woman there in Song of Solomon. I am black and beautiful. Yeah. And I look at her to talk to women about what it means to be passionate and what it means to have passion, what it means to be a woman of passion. That passion has to do with more than our sex life, yes. our sex urge, our very genuine and real sexual needs. And so I'm talking about passion as that thing that consumes us, that we feel called to do, that transports us. I think both Alice Walker and Katie Cannon in, in my field of religion says, doing the work that your soul must have, that's your passion. Doing the work that your soul must have. One of the things I say, particularly in that text that you're talking about, is save some passion for yourself. Don't give it all away to everybody else. Don't expend all of your passion even on sex and romance. Let me, let me step back and say romance. And that we are raised as women to, to understand passion only to be around romance and sex, but passion is your life energy. Yeah. And you must save some for yourself and save some for other kinds of pursuits. So yes, earlier in my, in my life, in my career, my passion was my work. I was a professor at Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School at the university and the graduate school for about 17 or 18 years. Passionate about that. As an aside, I recently purchased in note 
uh, the software to catalog all my books and to do all my citations. Now, Lisa, I consider myself to be digital, quasi-savvy. I won't, I'm obviously not a native. You know, I stay on top of things, all right? But I had this little young, little young sister, PhD, who's like my little mentee in some ways, but she digitally brings me along. So the other month, I'm just consumed writing these chapters for these books. I've agreed to uh, contribute to it. And she, I'm talking to her about something in Microsoft Works. She said, so are you using EndNote? And I'm like, and no, what's no? She said, "You mean you've been you've been writing all these years and you don't know? You know how have you been doing your citations?" I said, "I hate when it's time to do the bibliography. I hate footnotes because I, APA, MLA, uh, Terabian. Uh, I just hate it." So she said, oh, "Document just says my point. Is, it was just this last couple of months as I'm inputting all of everything, everything." that I realized how many books I had written, how many articles I had written, how much I had produced. I didn't know how much I had produced. Sometimes you don't know how much you have produced. You don't even know how many things you have sown. You don't know how passionate you have been. You don't know your own passion. You don't even know your own knowledge production. You don't know your own, you know, uh, garment production, if you will. You don't know your own creativity. You just out there knocking it out. Yes. So, so for many, many years uh, after Vandal and then going down to Spelman teaching for two years as a Cosby visiting professor and then some other kinds of things, I was passionate about writing, uh, the, the academic writing that you and I have to produce. I was passionate about the travel and, and speaking. I was always teaching somewhere. So I would get off the road from speaking, get back in the class the next morning, and then be back on the road somewhere speaking, whether it was at an academic conference or a church conference. All of that passion, because that takes a considerable amount of passion yes, it does. Uh, to do it over a long period of time. You see, and that's, enjoy that's, it. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. And still enjoy it. So, and then one day I realized I had almost given all my passion to academic work or to my church work. And I was missing something that was privately mine in a room of my own. Yes. Where it may see the light of day, it might not see the light of day, exactly. but it's mine. That's right. And, uh, and, I, and, and I, need, I need to bring some of the same passion to that work. And that's, I think, people who say, you quilt, you sew, because they only have seen one side. People don't know how to bring the artist and the academic, the scholar and the artist, the preacher and quilter, the professor and the sewist. They are surprised because in our world, those are diametrically opposed women. They are diametrically different. That's right. One of the things that I find with that description, it just reminds me about who are categories built for. Mm. Categories Mm. are built to put people and things in places, right? They're built to have structure or order. They're not Mm -hmm. particularly about liberation, right? Right. They're not particularly about like if you are a pastor and you are a theologian and you are a soist, you are not meant to be all of these things. It's like pick one. Right. Right. But what, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and other folks who have done with critical race theory is that they've taught us that intersectionality meets, especially Black women in particular, are the reason this concept exists, right? That Kimberly Crenshaw made it to describe a Black woman who, in this getting free versus, like, whatever the law case was in 1983, whatever she, this was designed to expose the ways that Black women in particular represent a defiance and a transcendence of category, right? The categories are women and Blacks. These are categories that have been created that leave out Black women all the time, right? And so when you talk about this diametric opposition between the creative and the scholarly, 
Now, the new phenomenon seems to be, you know, well, before interdisciplinarity, it seems to be more like bringing the arts back into all forms of knowledge production and not just the humanities. So it seems like Black women, we have already been doing the balance, right? Already been doing and trying to pursue work that is meaningful to us while also breaking down categories that want to keep so many realms separate. So, um, but what does the book say? But some of us are brave. But some right? of us are brave. That's right. <laughs> but That's some right. Of us are, some of us are, are brave. All what? All the men are black. black, all, black all, all, the all the women are white. Are white. All the blacks are men. All the women are white. Yeah, all the blacks are men. Right, right. But but some of us are, are indeed the notion that, that uh, we fall within those two categories. And, and yet, same time we fall within our own category but there are those overlapping realities for us by all means and that we challenge all boxes we challenge all boxes in any attempt to try to you know hem us in but i think i may you say this this is a message i think important to this podcast is to say it is a caution to even us as sisters as black women as women that we are not to replicate doing that to one another as well. So it's not always they do it to us, those men do it to us, those white. But come on, listen to this podcast, the ways in which we ourselves say, oh, Lisa is a professor and a soist? We fall into those traps ourselves. Yes. And we, we have to be mindful of that. Yeah, that is so true. You are absolutely right. We fall into those traps. And I know that, you know, Baldwin and so many other people have kind of talked about this, you as well, about the way that we internalize things that we think we might supposed to do, but we internalize a lot of things that don't serve us well. Um, and, and, And that part of our work is trying to figure out how can we live full, total, whole lives? That's my, that's my plan. That's my goal. Um, and I fall short of that a lot, but you know what? That's my falling short of my own expectations, not anybody else's, because I don't care about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what, what the line in Sula where she says, uh, you know, I did things my own, and Nail says to Sula, well, you're lonely. I, I bet you're lonely. She said, but it's my lonely. I, it's my lonely. It wasn't lonely. It was handed to me by somebody else. So I, I, I love that kind of line. I do too. Yeah, I do too. I do. I may be lonely, but it's my lonely. It's my lonely. Didn't know nobody hand me no lonely. I accepted my own lonely. I live my life in a way I made my own self lonely, but no man made me lonely. Exactly. That's what she's saying. Exactly right. And then Sula tells Nell after Nell's husband leaves, he's, she says, look at you. You got a secondhand lonely. A secondhand hey, lonely. Something. You Girl. got a secondhand Listen, lonely. How about that? I may have to tweet. I may have to tweet that after this. There's a secondhand lonely. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You got a secondhand yeah. lonely. And, and, I mean, on that, on, on that note, that beautiful quote by Toni Morrison about Sue, yes. if I may, yes, and, please uh, tell me uh, that you and I both, you and I both uh, love so much. I mean, you know, just Toni Morrison. You just know Toni Morrison nails it every time. Every okay. time. Every time. But she has this line. If, let me quote it. In a way, her strangeness. Her naivete, her craving for the other half of her equation was the consequence of an idle imagination. But had she paints or clay or knew the discipline of the dance or strings, had she anything to engage her tremendous curiosity and her gift for metaphor, she might have exchanged the restlessness and preoccupation with whim for an activity that provided her with all she yearned for. But like any artist with no art form, she became dangerous. Oh my God. If that's not it. Oh my God. That's it. An artist with no art form Dangerous. But but she puts her finger on, has she that sewing, quilting, cooking, gardening, they are disciplines. They are. That even art, it art itself is creating calls for a certain amount of discipline. Yes. 
Yes. The discipline of it. She said, has she something to discipline that passion? Discipline that tremendous energy of hers. Discipline that whimsical, idle side of her. Something to bring her back in. Something to run all that energy back in. Something to, it, it is like, I, I mean, you have children. I have a daughter. But those who even don't, who have seen children, you're always trying to help them harness that energy and say, yeah. baby, if I could just get all of that energy and let me get you in football, let me get you in basketball, let me get you in ballet, let me get you photography, let me get you playing guitar, piano, to harness that, give you, you need discipline. Yeah. I don't want to kill it. No. I don't want to, I, I, I want you to discipline that energy. Yeah. And create something with it. And so that it does not become self-destructive. I think that is what we put it. What sewing, what cooking, what gardening, what playing the piano, they are as much as your and my writing for ten for tenure promotion. It is a discipline. Yes. Yes. And and the idea of the unbridledness of of the, of passion, like what happens? I mean, cause people, you're going to have this creative spirit. You're going to have it, right? right? Why not use it? I really love what you said about saving some passion for yourself, that yeah. women, that sometimes it seems as though we are, particularly if one wants to follow certain Bible models in more patriarchal modes, it's all about like women's role is service, service and not yeah. service to ourselves, service to somebody else, right? About self, self-denial, self-abnegation, et cetera. Um, and that does not have to be that way, that there are lots of models for following one's passion as a way to fortify oneself. You know, like that example, they say, you know, before, like on the airplane, be sure to put on your own oxygen mask first before helping other passengers, right? That for many, at least for me, the creating of, of sewing, of quilting, of the needle arts, that is how I put on my own oxygen mask. That is how I restore my energy. That is how I, you know, start to feel lighter when things are heavy, right? Yes. And so yeah. the, the to cultivate that practice just seems mm-hmm. so healthful, so healthy. And I, one of the things I appreciate about your work is that you invite this consideration all the time that this becomes a part of one's spiritual practice, one's um, self-beholding or self-regard. And that's what I think is one of the beautiful contributions of the legacy of your work is for Black women. Let me just say, you are a literary critic of Black feminist literary critic or professor of literature. I am a failed literary critic, failed Black woman professor of literature. So I just went into religion because I couldn't do it. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to write novels. I wanted to do literature. Earlier, many, many years ago, people still meet me now and say, I remember you used to write for Essence magazine. And I say, yeah, I did. In the 80s, 70s and and 80s, I wanted to uh, be a literary figure. I wanted to write like Tony Morrison. Let me just say, let me just own that, okay? This before Beloved, so this is the Sula and the Blue Eye, right? Okay, yeah. Alice Walker, this is up to Meridian. This is not the color purple yet. This okay. is okay. Strange Life of Gold. Sure. Grange Copeland. Copeland. Okay. Copeland, yes, yes. That's right, okay. And with a Polly Marshall, Brown Girl, Brown Stones, okay? Stones. So I'm talking about era writing, right? My undergraduate degree was economics. I was in college, particularly where I went to school, when there was a infusion of women, white women, black women, into the business world. My year of graduating college was the year uh, we were all going into, we were getting MBAs and law degrees. My degree was in economics. So I saw myself on Wall Street. Oh, yes. Went to New York, worked in Merrill Lynch, got my license. The first day my job Merrill Lynch, after I got my license, I went into the women's bathroom and I wrote on a sheet of paper, I hate my job. And that's when I started writing. That was the day I started writing. I had never 
entertain writing. I had not been I had not been a literature major at Wellesley. I took one course with Hortense Spillers, but I was econ the whole way. I was econ economics. But it's the hating of job with Merrill Lynch that sent me into the women's bathroom to cry and say, oh, I hate this. I don't want to do this. This is oh I hate this. I don't know how I found about this women's bookstore up at 92nd in Amsterdam named Women's Book. I made my way up there. Somebody told me about it and I found my muse. This was back when feminist bookstores were proliferating. That's a whole nother article, academic article on that. That's true. Women's Bookstore was at 92nd in Amsterdam. And in that bookstore, little tiny bookstore, probably no larger than my sewing room right here. And it had a couch and it had all the black women's littered novels. It had white women's. I had never, I hadn't read Virginia Woolf. I hadn't read Willa Cather. I had read Flannel Cotton. I hadn't read Tony Marcy. I hadn't read Polly Marshall. And my, my, my healing was after working in Merrill Lynch downtown at the Pan Am building, yes, I would then take the train up to 92nd and Amsterdam and spend the evening at Womb Books. Wow. Acquainting myself with Black women's literature and women's literature, period. And I fell in love with writing. That is how I really started wanting to be a writer. And then I met a girlfriend who, you know, who was an editor. I tell you people now, this is back before Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And on and on the board, Lisa, remember the board? And we used to have the little index cards. If yes. you are interested in Black women's, reading Black women's literature, please call this telephone number. And that was, you know, that was the, what was the, what was it called, that board that they always had? Like everybody, a bulletin board? The bulletin board. And so if you go into the bookstore, you always look in the bulletin because you just know yes. what you're going to sit there. And there was a sister who was an editor at Essence, but that's not how she introduced her. She was just looking for other Black women who love Black literature. Right. And she finished Yale, had been a roommate. And I called her and she said, well, you want to meet on Sundays? And we can just start reading books together. And I was like, yes, because I needed a two, okay? Yes. And from there, because she worked at Essence, she learned about this group called Sister, because she was already on the end with knowing what, what Black women were doing in New York. Yes, that's she right. Invited, we were both young undergrad, well, we just finished our grad, uh, undergraduate degree. And she said, listen, I understand that Alice Walker and Ntisaki Shani and June Jordan have started this group called Sisterhood. And Black women in literature throughout New York meet on Sundays once a month here in the city. And we meet, they meet at Alice's house or at June's house. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working at Essence, and you know I'm a junior editor. I know about it on the totem pole, but they tell me about it. She said, you want to know? I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's crash the party. Yes. I get to go and to so a, we, a reading group at Alice Walker or June Jordan's yeah. house. Yes, yes, please. What? Yes, yes, please. Even back then, there was a yes, please. Oh, my and when word. And we got there, you are meeting all the luminaries. You're reading Marie Brown, who was at Random House at the time. You're meeting, I don't think I ever saw Tony Arson come that particular, that particular day. Verda made Rose Bernard. Oh, my you're gosh. Talking, you're talking about, uh, uh, yes, Polly yes, Marshall. Of course, I'm Polly Marshall. Girl, uh, it, wow. because they were all there because of Alan and June. And so the rest of us are just kind of, you know, the non-published, unpublished, never will be published, whatever. We just sat over in the corner and said, would you, would you like food? And just, Intizaki <laughs> <laughs> uh, came a couple of times. I mean, they were, people were in and out all the time, but it really was a collective. I know that's, yeah. that's the word you all use now, collective. Yes of uh, Black women who were movers and shakers, who were intellectual, because it wasn't just literary scholars, right. uh, but it was the, really the Black the talent attempt, the intelligentsia of sisters yes. in the New York area in late 70s who wanted to get together and say, listen, let's get together and let's talk. And, and uh, so that's how I, I joined that for about a couple of years. And so I really wanted to do writing. When that didn't 
and out. I did do some things for Essence. And I ultimately left um, Merrill Lynch, of course, because I thought I'm going to write the great American novel. I want to do a 19th century abolitionist novel uh, using, using characters like Lydia Maria Childs wow. and William Lloyd Garrison. I, girl, I can go. Listen, you, you don't have any time for me to do Listen, that book is still I, in this, there. I think that idea is still in there. So well, what I ended, what I tell people when I tell the story is, then my landlord wanted his rent. <laughs> How dare you? You are an artist, okay? You can't work on I landlord quit, time. I quit Merrill Lynch. My uh, 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 my check, my monthly check had run out. Unemployment check ran out, and then I heard uh, uh, you, people say, "Were you called?" I said, "Let's just say I was broke." And I said, "Did God call you to ministry?" Let's just say I couldn't pay my rent. And I will end with this: I was always in the church. I was always still going to buy. I was my best was still women in religion. So I would be at church on Sundays, and I would run up to New York into the city to listen to John Henry Clark, Flo Kennedy, oh you know God. Tony Morrison. And I'll run back to revivals with my little beanie on my head. And then on Tuesdays, I would back listen to some radical lesbian poetry. And then I would go back to church and, and, and teach Bible study. I had always these two lives, church and my radical passion for social justice, feminist sensibility. And I didn't know there was no way back then to bring them together. So I didn't tell the church world I was hanging out with radical feminist has been uh activist and i didn't tell and i sure didn't tell them that i was going to revival on monday nights and i heard and because i always been really i'd heard that princeton uh was looking for black students princeton seminary and i figured how hard this is my i use this phrase all the time how hard could religion be so I figured, I do this church thing. I do Bible study. And I still want to write this novel. But if I go over to Princeton Seminary, I'll be in the dorm. I get three square meals. I won't have to worry about rent. And I can write my novel and take the religion courses on the side. On the side. Because how hard can it be, really? I mean. How, how hard can religion be? And that's how I became in ministry. That's how I became a, a professor of Bible. Because I got over there and said, I'm going to work on my novel, get me a little, have a dorm room, me some meals in the rectory, but I'm going to work on my novel and go take the little Bible and religion and that, that little stuff. On the side. And then, no. On the side. And then I got bit by religion <laughs> and I found ways to bring my literary side and my religious scholarship together. Lisa, I know I'm telling you a whole lot here, but, but that's I- how that's. I am honored to hear it and grateful to hear it because what I'm hearing is this beautiful self-fashioning, right? That you are modeling what you are writing about in your books, right? You have you were able to follow a variety of passions, a passion for freedom and social justice, a passion for Black women's literature and culture, a passion for radical, the breaking down of all sorts of categories by race, sex, gender, sexuality. All of that was something you're committed to. And also you're committed to the church. You're committed to Sunday services. You're committed to Sunday church, Sunday school. You're committed to revival. You were committed to Bible study. You're committed to all of those things. And your passion's about the all of it. And so when you look back at what you have done, what I'm able to summarize, just, you know, not even, like obviously not summarize, I can allude to this line from this book and this line from this book. And when you put them together, it is ex- it's almost exactly as it should have been, right? So your rent, your landlord wanted rent, and um, that was part of the call as well. You know, the, your landlord called and said, you owe me money. And then you got the bigger call from the Lord that was like, you know what, you might as well. Oh, go you're doing well. Uh, you are a literary scholar, girl. You have read, you have read novels, haven't you? You are doing well telling the story. Go right ahead. 
Girl, don't please, stop. I just listen, listen. You, I'm just summarizing what you just said <laughs> because you just said. I mean, I didn't know everything you just said. I am just. I'm a good summarizer. You have really given us a model and also showing how what it means to forge your own path truly, right? Because you were able to write your way into a life of purpose. And not just the writing, of course, it's not just the the legacy of your written and scholarly contributions. It's also the preaching. It's also the, you know, going around and doing the things that you do and meeting with people and just being a possibility model for the ways that we can free ourselves, the way that we can find ways to sustain ourselves, which becomes so necessary for Black women living in a country and amongst the dominant culture that doesn't really give a shit, as it were, about how we thrive or not. That's something I thought is just so beautiful about your work. And now I'm also having the horrible realization that I just said a cuss word in front of a pastor. So that's something that I'll be thinking about for the rest of the day. I will be a pope right now and absolve my daughter. You have been absolved, my daughter. I thank you. <laughs> I, I, you cannot kiss my ring, but just you just know <laughs> that you have absolved, my daughter. That is not the worst thing that God has ever heard, nor the, uh, as a preacher have I ever heard or said myself. So, but you know, I, I, if I may kind of squeeze this in, whether we haven't done time to, I just want to say how much I admire you and admire your work. When you interviewed Rita of the other week, at the month when it was, uh, how I just love the synergy between the two of you. But then you mentioned with the young people said you dropped some knowledge there for a minute there that just caught my attention when I dropped some something. I don't know. My 28-year-old daughter hurt me. She would be rolling her eyes out. Oh, there goes my mama trying to be relevant. But anyway, <laughs> you studied with Nellie McKay. That you studied with Nellie McKay, who was a foremost personality founder in the Black feminist literary movement. Of that era. And yeah. when you mentioned Nellie McKay, my head, I think I was sewing. I popped, my neck popped and said, is that right? Is she said, and, and also because your class, she probably is not your classmate. I don't know if you and she, you know, Benjamin were classmates. Oh, yeah. Classmate. yeah. We were in the same okay. cohort. Yeah, she's young. She's, wow. she's a few years after me. She came like maybe three years after me. But we went, we were there together. Yes. I, I have touted this book, Half in Shadow. So I much. Oh my God. I, I, I post, I've tweeted, and I keep on there. But as so now, some of my womanist friends are beginning to post it. They this morning, somebody said, Oh my God, you just got to read this because it's about Nellie, because it's so interesting. But, but it is the story of a student. Yes. Writing about her beloved professor. Yes, it is. And, all, is the com- and all the complications of that. Yeah. All the complications of but what I loved is those of us who are professors knowing one day maybe one of our students may be doing the same, but also telling the story of the early decades of Black women's literature yes. and the story of, of Brittany Cooper's comp question, what it means to be a Black female intellectual, yes. what it means to be a professor what it means to be produced of knowledge. Yes. And I, I mean, you know, Shana does this, but she does more than that. But for someone yes. who is at my point in my career, who looking back, reading this, all of those questions are already in my own life. And I bring all of that to the reading of Hat and Shadow about Nellie Kay. And it brings, Brings up a lot of memories of that period and those writers and those people who I've read, but also to know that now I'm talking to one of her students. <laughs> yes, one of her one of her students who who obviously was. I mean, I've read Shana Benjamin's book, but when you said, "Oh yeah, you know, my professor was Nellie McKay," I like I said, I dropped my singer machine, saying, "Oh my God, this has just got to be God." It, it, this is just got to be God. It is. I think um, it is. I think it is. It's, and it, it's just, it's a real blessing because she was a wonderful mentor and guide and deeply committed to the discipline as well as to helping us 
become as skilled, as practiced, as poised, as confident and competent. Like she was really excellent on the page about helping people, at least my, it was my writing, helping me to, to just think harder, to think more carefully. And that is a really generous gift when someone is so patient with your work. And that's something that she did for me. And the idea of working with someone who created a whole discipline, right? Who built, you know, it it reminds me of that famous poem. I think this is an Alice Walker poem where she talks about how these, um, that looking back at black women and that we like built movements out of the pots and pans of our kitchens, or we built and financed whatever from the dirt on our hands and our gardens that we would sell this produce all the way through before pre-capitalism. It was just about community building. And that was something that I absolutely felt as her student. Absolutely. But did you know she was starting a movement? Did she know she was starting a discipline? I think she did. Because I remember when talking with her, she helped to create what Black studies became. What she was also interested in, and I guess Shauna would know more of the details, she really loved the American Studies Association Conference. She did a lot of work with MLA because that was the discipline where literary studies was. And of course, and she did a a lot of leadership, a lot, a lot. At the same time, I think, I think ASA still is more fun and more interesting. And I don't like MLA. I find it dry and scary and so much scarcity. You know what I mean? It's just horrible. But ASA, American Mm -hmm. Studies Association, is so much more fun. And I don't know, I think AAR, the American Religious Y'all's Conference, that professional conference, that looks like it's fun as well. It looks like everybody has more fun than MLA. You know, I always hear that about MLA. I always I have always heard that about MLA. It's true. Don't you don't go. It's not it's really not. Oh, it's so unfortunate. Maybe I shouldn't say that about my own professional organization, but ill. Um, I much prefer ASA. Um, And I think it was because of the fluidity and flexibility and MLA is really a lot of very staid, sometimes very European driven, still very, you know, they're very, very slow on the social justice uptake. Like it's a big, big, huge thing that can be hard to move, I imagine. But that's okay. Anyone who's listening to this, don't invite me to be on any committees because I don't want to change it from within. I don't want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you this question. This is so I'm going to be releasing this episode at the start of 2022. And this is going to be a way to um, to welcome us back. I'm going to be taking a hiatus from the podcast for December. And so some of the first episodes of the new year will happen in uh, January. And so I wonder if you could share a little bit of advice about recommendations that you might have to just help us get started off on this new year in a good right foot, like anything that you like to do for a reset or how you deal with transitions. You obviously yeah. deal well with them because you do great in general. My very things that I'm sure going to post all around my place at uh, the beginning of year one, well-behaved women do not change history. So I will certainly, I have to always remember that, that well-behaved Women, so I have never behaved. So I don't doubt, I, I'm sure that in 2022, I would not be any less belligerent, uh, vocal, headstrong, hell-raising, fire-breathing in 22 as I have been elsewhere. Uh, I've made my peace with that. I am not well-behaved. I am not conventional. It took me a long while, but I've, I, that you're just so radical. Oh my God, I used to fear that word. I am. Secondly, if you want to fly, you have to jump off the cliff and learn how to fly on the way down. You build your wing on the way down. But first, you have to just go ahead and jump. You don't jump and say, uh, I need to learn how to fly before I jump. No, you learn to fly when you have jumped. So I think if you want to talk about transition, you want to talk about a brand new year. I think that coming out of this, this COVID pandemic that we have come out of, the playing field has been leveled, I think, in some ways. You can be whoever you want. You can start from scratch now. 
you can start with just patches of fabric now and build who you want to be and create who you want to be. It is, it is a frightening time and it is an exciting time. I think that 100 years from now, when our granddaughters, great-granddaughters look back on this period, I hope we say to them, we were certainly frightened coming out of this COVID. We were frightened within it, but we came out of it also. This is also exciting because now, you, you know, we will never work the same way that we used to work. Right. Uh, our notion of time is different than it has ever been. Our sense of what we can accomplish has changed over the last 20 months. Uh, we have discovered that we were stronger than we thought we, we were. We also discovered community. We, we have now longed for one another in ways that we had not longed for. Being with our girlfriends, laughing and talking, touching one another, going out for drinks or for a meal, being spending time with family. I think so many rituals, and I'm and I'm talking also as a as a minister, as a pastor, as someone who doesn't know what the future of the church is, the black church. Will people ever come back the way they used to be? I don't know. We are suffering in some real ways in that area, but at the same time, it's exciting. It's exciting because it, it behold all things brand new yes. to some degree. And I, you know, there's a scripture said, behold, I do a new thing in the earth. And I've got to see this, uh, Lisa, as a, as a new thing. I got to see, and I am grateful to have lived at this moment in, in time to look at younger women and this girl, come on. You can do this. You have so much more available to you than, than I did. Yeah. And saying this to, to my door is frightening what's going to happen with Wade versus Roe. Now, you want me to, that's a whole nother conversation. Yes. I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about Black women and their sexual reproductive health and freedoms. Yes. But at the same time, uh, I will close with this. I read a writer who said, uh, every generation, has its, and he's he's talking in a European setting, every generation has its own Berlin Wall. Mm. And I would say every generation has its Edmund Penn Bridge. Yes. Every generation has its Montgomery Bus. Yes. Every generation. And maybe for my daughter's generation, this what happens to Roe versus Wade. Maybe every generation has its Ferguson. Yes. But listen, I, I can't lay down on the ground with y'all no more. I'm too old because y'all after y'all gonna pick me up. I can't be out there all, all smelling smoke and all that. Baby, I'm I'm past that age. I can give you my intellectual capital now, but I can't be out there on the road with you. But this is this is their generation to figure out you got your evil, I got my evil. We had our evil. Now you have your evil, you have your. Edmund Pettus Bridge, your burning wall. We're passing the baton on to you. But it is exciting. And one day you will look back on it and say, look at what God has done. Look at what my generation did. Look what our music did. Look what our art did. Look what our creations yes. uh, did. Yes. And all I can say is just say some passion. After you have raised hell, been out there, done your Black Lives Matter protest, brought the white man down, and done all of that. Now save some passion for yourself. Yes. And go to your garden, go to your sewing machine, make your mama's biscuits, go do somebody's hair, go do something that feeds your soul. Go put on Nina Simone and Ella Baker and you know, many Ripton and, and feed your soul because there's always going to be more evil tomorrow and more of a battle day after tomorrow and need to nourish yourself so that you might be strong to fight the enemy. Oh, I love it. And on that note, we are so thankful to the Reverend Dr. Renita J. Weems. And this, I hope, will not be our only conversation. I would love to have you back. Um, Um, We will absolutely have to make that happen. Um, But where can folks find you if they want to learn more about you? I'll I'll be sure to put all your links in the chat. I'm on Twitter at 
something within. My Instagram is the same at something within. My website, Renita Weems, no middle initial. This one is renitaweems.com, I believe. So you will have all everything else. I'm reachable. I'm accessible, if you will. I'm I'm social media platformable, if you will. So it is a continuation of my own working and my own blog. So I and I I, I love raising hell and I love chatting about raising hell. So let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. This has been wonderful. Yay. Thank you. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together.